Hello, I'm Lisa Smazarski, Editor-in-Chief of Stylist, and welcome to our new podcast, Stylist Live Sessions, recorded live at our annual Festival of Inspiration. In this episode, you're going to hear from philosopher, writer, broadcaster, and founder of the School of Life, Alain de Botton. In his session, Therapeutic Learnings, Making Sense of Your Past to Build Your Future, Alan delves into the influence our childhood has on how we live and love as adults. As this session is recorded live at the Truman Brewery, you might hear a bit of background noise and there is some interaction with the crowd. Do get involved at home if you can and try out his conversation starters. Here's Alan de Botton. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. What a pleasure to be here. Look, we're just going to begin with a very quick show of hands. Who here is normal? Anyone normal? If you're normal, stick up your hand. Anyone normal? Oh, my God. You know, if this was a gathering of blokes, everyone would have put up their hand. That's the problem with men. Uh, they're very uh, in love with the idea that they might be normal. It's, it's a... I mean, you'll notice from my turn, it's a very bad thing to think you're normal, basically because no one is normal. Everyone is incredibly complicated, vulnerable, fragile, strange in the best of ways. And it's often the adherence to an idea of normality that actually is the beginning of problems. Uh, if you're going on a date with somebody, and if you say, you know, very good question, you're trying to assess who they are, they're trying to assess who you are. If you just turn to your date and say, so how are you mad? How are you mad? In a spirit of genuine inquiry, genuine curiosity, you're going to open up about you and uh, they're going to, should be opening up about themselves. If they look puzzled or just have nothing to say or say, how do you mean mad? Run away. Just, just, just run because it's not going to go anywhere. So the, you know, none of us can be sane, but what we can try and aim for is a mature accommodation with our immaturities, a more or less compassionate and more or less workable relationship with everything about us that is jagged, awkward, and doesn't really fit the normal uh, narratives. Um, the beginning of friendship, incidentally, is always around that shared zone of folly, eccentricity, pain. Um, again, if we can gender the issue, terrible problem about being a man is when people say, how are you doing? You always have to say fantastic, even if you're dying, especially if you're dying. In fact, the good news is we're all dying, just at different speeds. So the answer should always be something much darker. I mean, look, let's do a little tiny experiment here. Turn to somebody that you've never met in this group, right? And uh, it's, it's a slight leap of faith, right? Swallow hard. Um, complete the following sentence with them. I'm a failure because... Right? Just look at a stranger and say, I'm a failure because... You've got one minute now. All right, all right, all right. I think we're going to have to end it there. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you very much. 
by the way, this is more or less the only question that you ever need if you, in order to build a social life, because that is the route into sincere and authentic connection with another human being. Everything else is nonsense, right? So the sense of failure, you know, we struggle so hard in life because we think it's on the basis of our successes that people will like us. No one particularly likes people for their successes. We admire them. We feel sometimes proud of them, but like them, no. We begin to like people when they do us the honor of revealing the way in which their lives are awkward in the way that we know from the inside that our lives are, are awkward. This is really why we built the School of Life. We built the School of Life as a safe place in which to discuss all the things that are more difficult than society generally allows them to be. Um, there are pl it's a place where you can come and be, we sometimes like the word melancholic. Uh, it's, a, it's a weird word. Uh, it's a very English word, melancholic, and it's a very English emotion. Americans do either tragedy or optimism. We do melancholy. And melancholy is an important mood. It, it represents probably the most mature way in which an adult can encounter the troubles of being human. And that's very much what we try and do at, at the School of Life. Today I want to talk about psychotherapy and how we develop. Uh, but I want to start in a perhaps slightly unusual place with, with, with the word trauma. Now the word trauma is nowadays a much used one. We hear lots of things about what a trauma is and isn't, etc. I want to try and zero in on my sense of what a trauma is. A trauma is any kind of pain which is missing context, understanding, and processing. And it's not so much the scale of the pain that counts as in, in terms of its effect on us as the missing bit that comes afterwards, the understanding. So trauma is pain that has not been understood and contextualized. And it's fair to say that most of our emotional problems can essentially be traced back to traumas that have not been sufficiently explored. Why have they not been explored? Well, it's extremely hard to remember what has happened to us. Almost all of us have a very hard time remembering anything that happened to us before our seventh birthdays. And definitely by the time we're looking at before five, almost none of us have any memory of anything that happened to us before then. That's a huge stretch of time and a hugely formative stretch of time. You've seen those little films of what ducklings do when they're born. They immediately start to follow the mother duckling, mother duck, and um, depending on how that goes, they'll either be led in a good direction or led in a more challenging direction. We are all ducklings that as soon as we emerge, we follow the adults and role models around us. And sometimes that's wonderful and sometimes that gives us real uh, uh, problems. Now, the, the difficulty of, of, uh, of trauma is that uh, traumas happen very fast. They happen in ways in which those who look after us are not in a position to help us to process, often, let's be honest, because they are the causes of our traumas. Um, I don't know how many of you have children. I have children. I've been a child and have children. So we're not into parent blaming in any willy-nilly way. But um, pretty much if you do have a parent, you should probably, if you are a parent, you should probably put your hand up immediately and say, I'm making big mistakes. Um, and defensiveness is not something that should be part of the armory of any parent. First job of a parent is to put up your hand and say, yes, it's true, I probably did do that thing and I'm terribly sorry. That should more or less be the modus operandi of every, of every parent. 
But um, very few parents actually are, are, are in the mood for that. And they do all sorts of things to us without especially meaning to damage us tragically. Um, the number one thing that goes wrong, and it's an enormous word, uh, is love. Um, if we have difficulties in adult life to an extraordinary degree, it always comes down to a shortfall somewhere in the journey in the provision of love. Um, and it should seem like the most natural thing, but it is not, we are not generally very good at giving love to the most vulnerable members of our societies. In other words, children. And so when we grow up from childhood, we start to have all sorts of problems in receiving and giving love to others. So there's an enormous wellspring of complexity around this giving and receiving of, of love. Um, sometimes people don't want to make generalizations about what a good parent might be, but let's give it a shot, because why not? We're among friends. So what is a good parent? What is a non-traumatizing parent? Well, a non-traumatizing parent is first and foremost someone who admits that they may have caused trauma without meaning to. They are not defensive around their level of perfection. They're happy to entertain the possibility that they are a less than perfect parent. That's a fantastic beginning. The other thing they are, and this sounds so obvious, is they're incredibly pleased that their child exists. This is not to be taken for granted. Not every parent, for all sorts of complex reasons, can greet the existence of their child with a necessary pleasure. And if you are the offspring of somebody who, for whatever reason, was not entirely pleased that you existed on Earth, my goodness, that will be, in certain ways, a very difficult life. And the task of processing that wound will go on probably for the rest of your life. It's not enough just to be pleased. The other thing a parent has to do, and it sounds so simple but isn't, is listen. And what I mean by listen is listen to the authentic, complicated reality of a child. The other day, I was on a train, and there was a child going to the seaside with its parents. And the child was saying to its mother, um, I think it was his mother, um, I'm not looking forward to the seaside, I want to go home. And the parents said, very well-meaning, said, don't be silly, you know you're going to have fun, we're going on holiday. Now, if you're four years old, life is not that simple. You may have a horror of a holiday. What does that mean? Maybe you left your teddy bear at home. A new bedroom is terrifying. You don't know what's going to be under the bed. You don't know whether the wardrobe is hiding some terrible monster, etc. A child's mind is a lively place, an imaginative place. It is also a terror-filled place. And I think that parents are often so worried about how peculiar their children are. When a child says things like, I'd like granny to be killed, or I'm never going back to school, right? It's no good saying, but granny's a nice person, or don't be silly, school's really important, it's the route to a good job. Of course this is true, but it's not the authentic experience of a child. And so often what happens in parenting, even well-meaning parenting, is that the authentic reality of a small person is constantly crushed. And the child doesn't remember, and the adult doesn't remember. But what soon happens is the child starts to grow what psychotherapists know as a false self. Now, in order to be an authentic, creative, alive human being, we all have to have experienced for a certain number of years, for a certain stretch, that others have been able to accept our true selves. What do we mean by our true selves? Well, 
in childhood, in early childhood, the true self is not always charming and sweet. The true self may involve somebody who has murderous impulses, who's in a rage, who's fed up with things, who hates, but also who loves, who is tender, who can be kind and compassionate, but not on command. It's true, it comes authentically. Now, very often, as I'm trying to suggest, the true self is under pressure from the need to conform. And therefore, too early, in order to satisfy the fragile wishes of parents and caregivers, a child is forced to grow up into a false human being. Their false self covers up the true self. And these people, which is really me and many of you, end up as that most terrible, um, in a way terrible uh, adult psychological personality, the people pleaser. Who here is a people pleaser? Okay, we're all people. No, not all of us, but right. now. Why is the people pleaser a people pleaser? Because there were many things about their reality which proved unacceptable to those on whose love they depended, right? And so this is an incredible journey to be able to overcome people pleasing, to be able to risk being an authentic human being in front of others, particularly strikes people in relationships. How can you have a proper functioning relationship as a people pleaser? I speak from experience, you can't. Um, the only way in which to have a proper relationship is to dare to risk alienating the person that you're with if you are fully honest and communicate your true self to them. That's a risk you're not gonna be able to take if as far back as early childhood, you've not been able to do this. So look, many of us are wandering around with symptoms of wounds and traumas dating back to the past. How do we know that these symptoms exist? What are these symptoms? Well, one of the top symptoms is we don't like to be on our own with our own minds. Fortunately for these sort of people, the modern world is more or less devoted, committed to distracting you from yourself. Right? If you don't want to spend any time with your mind, there's every single possible gadget. And of all the things that we can blame Silicon Valley and the phone industry for, ultimately, the reason that these gadgets are so pernicious is that they deny us the chance to get acquainted with all that is frightened and all that is broken within us. Because anxiety, you know, what we describe as anxiety, is always a desire on the part of one part of our minds to have an encounter with the truth, but a truth that's going to be difficult. And because it's difficult, we want to run away. And because of Mark Zuckerberg, there's always something to run away to, unfortunately. You know, many of us can't sleep. Why can't we sleep? Well, what is insomnia? At the School of Life, we say that insomnia is essentially the revenge of all the thoughts that you, in inverted commas, forgot to have in the day coming back and knocking at the door and demanding to be heard. So if you want to sleep a bit better, don't bother with teas or long baths. What you need to bother with is an encounter with those split-off bits of your mind that are unendurable. And often they are really quite unendurable. So we are addicted not just to alcohol, drugs, uh, 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 all the traditional things. We're also addicted to our phones, to work. Anything can become an addiction. The way to define an addiction is that it's anything that takes you away from what you need to think about and holds you tethered to something you don't need to think about, but that has a kind of nominal uh, uh, prestige. One of the ways in which we know we're trapped in a trauma-based cycle 
is we keep repeating stuff without knowing that we are repeating it. This happens especially in love. You know, nowadays it's believed that we can choose anyone to fall in love with. We're just looking for lovely people and, you know, in the olden days our parents, our societies would say, you've got to marry that one, you've got to marry this one. We married for dynastic reasons. Nowadays, yippee, we're free to marry anyone. But are we? No, we're not. Because we are under heavily du heavy duress to marry people who will meet a psychological script that generally we don't even know exists. Um, all of us love in grooves, in patterns laid down in early childhood. We are not free to love just anyone. We love according to models of love that we imbibed in our earliest years. We love in familiar ways. And sometimes familiarity on the one hand and happiness on the other go in very different directions. You know a situation where, let's say you recommend that a friend of yours goes on a date with someone that you really like. And at the end, you say, you recall them up, and you say, so how was the date? Did you like them? They say, you know, they're really nice. And your friend goes, ah, and you know, oh God, another one. What is it? What, what was wrong with this person I set you up with? What, did you find them unpleasant? No. Were they kind? Yeah. Were they, were they friendly? Yeah. So you think, well, what's the problem? And basically, what they say is, mm, I don't know. They were somehow, I don't know, there's no kind of attraction. I don't know. It's like somehow not a spark. And what I think they're meaning to say is, my unconscious is recognizing that this person does not have what they should have if they're going to make me suffer in the ways that I need to suffer in order to appease my script from early childhood about what a lover should be doing for me. So most of us are not free to love just anyone. We are tightly bound to love people who can repeat with and for us patterns of suffering that we endured in the past and never knew that we endured in the past. So we are not free as, as much as free as we would like uh, to be. Many of us suffer from the two great ills of modern society, anxiety on the one hand, depression on the other. What is anxiety? In my view, Anxiety is a fear from the past that has not been remembered and is being projected forward, usually at innocent targets. Anxiety is a fear of a catastrophe that you fear will happen, but that actually has already happened, but been forgotten. And the same model happens around depression. Depression is not merely sadness. Depression is trauma and grief and loss that has been forgotten and therefore casts its shadow over an entire life as opposed to mourning. Mourning is different from depression. Mourning, you know you've suffered a loss and you are processing the loss. Depression, you can't put your finger on what the loss is and therefore the whole of life loses its purpose and, and, its, uh, and, it, and its beauty. Um, what do we do as traumatized human beings? One of the things that we do is try and become famous. We start to become, want to become, if any of you have children, you'll know that you're a good parent if they have absolutely no wish ever to be known to strangers. The desire to be known to a stranger is always a compensation. I say this and welcome you here. Um, uh, but, but any form of outsized ambition even. Um, there's wanting money and there's needing money. There's, 
There's thinking that status might be a good thing and thinking that without status you will die. On a certain end of the spectrum, somebody can be so engaged with a process of compensation for an early childhood neglect that they are literally in a life or death struggle for a level of recognition that they kind of died without, without even knowing they died without in, in early life. And one of the problems of our modern ambitious societies is they fail to pick up on the number of so-called celebrities who are first and foremost ill. They are unwell. And we don't recognize this, and so we treat them very badly. Um, but ultimately, what these people need is psychological assistance, not mockery, Australian game shows, or all the rest of it. We're dealing with very, very unwell people. Um, how can we start to process and get to grips with trauma? Well, it's just worth saying, we are generally strangers to ourselves. You know, part of being human is very mysterious. We inhabit a mind that we know only a very small percentage of. Let's say five or 10% of the mind is familiar to us and the other 90 is completely mysterious. Health requires us to try and change that percentage, to try and turn more and more of the unconscious conscious. Well, how on earth do we do that? There are some, just to start with the more playful end of things, there are some psychological questionnaires um, that can be very useful on this. I'm a great fan, and the School of Life is a great fan of question prompts. What is a question prompt? A question prompt is an unfinished sentence that ends in an ellipsis and that simply asks you to finish an unfinished sentence. Let, let's try one. Um, let's just try one right now. Now, don't think too much. It's very important not to think too much because it's the first answer that's going to reveal what's really in your mind. And don't correct, you know, be honest, don't correct your answer. But take a moment to just think what I'm really anxious about now is dot, dot, dot. What I'm really anxious about now is dot, dot, dot. Any volunteers want to just put up your hand and say what it is that right now, what's come up? What's come up, as you said, what I'm now really anxious about now? Go for it. Stand up and shout, because we don't have a mic. Brave, brave lady is anxious about her dad not being well enough to, 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 and, and not being able to bring him here. Anyone else? What are you anxious about right now? Yeah. COVID coming back. Many, many others. Look, take what you've said, and let me hazard a guess. When you, are, when you say to yourself, what am I really anxious about? Or indeed, another question. What is it I really want? Or what is it that I've lost? Or what is making my life difficult? Or what is something that I need to change about myself? These are all prompts that have a, a childlike simplicity to them. But if you spend time in the bath, at home in bed, and just occasionally run some of these questions through you, you'll be amazed at what starts to come up. Most of us do not do our own minds, the basic inquiry of, of, of checking in with them and seeing what lies behind the veil of day-to-day -day panic, day-to-day -day anxiety that keeps us running. If we manage to budget moments where we can just stop, take stock and ask ourselves, what is lying behind the panic? What is lying behind the sadness? What is lying behind the worry? We will often find a worry behind the worry. 
a loss behind the anxiety, and that's what we need to, to, to get to. Um, psychotherapy is a discipline that I'm very interested in and that the School of Life is very, discipline, uh, very interested in. We've just launched a new psychotherapy service. I've helped to design it and spent the last 15 months training to be a psychotherapist and designing our new psychotherapy service because in many ways, I think that if you're dealing with traumatic memories and traumatic incidents, there's probably nothing better than to take those to this institution we call psychotherapy. And the School of Life Psychotherapy Department has been very specifically designed to guide us to re-encounter the bits of ourselves, the true self that is currently in pain, has not been sufficiently heard, and if it gets a hearing, will release us from the symptoms, be they insomnia, manic ambition, social anxiety, loss of confidence, depression, that is currently holding us back. So without wishing to turn this into an advert, but actually, I never mind selling things I believe in. Please go to the School of Life website, look up our therapeutic services. You will find in them a promise of a journey towards the kind of mental stability that I have been looking for for most of my adult life. And I always take me as the greatest patient. And I figure if it works for me, it could work for you. Um, what is it the psychotherapy does? Why, why bother with this thing called psychotherapy? Well, the psychotherapist is first and foremost a creature who has been built to listen. Or oh, why don't I just go and see my friends? They listen. No, they don't. No, they don't. I don't know your friends, but I know my friends, and I know what a friend is. A friend is a charming companion who has not been trained how to listen. And the reason is that when you say, I'm a little bit upset about, they'll go, oh, I'm upset too. Let me tell you. Right? And, um, and they mean so well. Or when you say, I'm a bit down about something, they'll go, no, you're not. There's so much to be looking forward to. And again, in the most well-meaning of ways, they are crushing your true self which, since early childhood, has not had its say. So if we can define the task of psychotherapy, it is to create a safe space in which the true self can at last be heard. That's why people cry, that's why people scream, that's why people fall silent, that's why people fall very hostile. We need to get this stuff out. If I can put it this way, we might have a breakdown. People say, oh my God, I'm so scared of having a breakdown. Have a breakdown. A breakdown is very often a breakthrough that doesn't know how to make its way past our defenses. Most of us are ill because we have built so many defenses against our early traumas. Defenses of escape, defenses of intellectualization. My God, I was guilty of that. Most of my life, I've been an intellectual. Nietzsche, Heidegger, Montaigne, what on earth was this all about? It was all an elaborate defense to protect me from a three-year-old who went through some bad stuff and didn't know anything about fancy philosophers. So intellectualization is a classic defense. The other defense is cheerfulness, which doesn't mean anything to do with happiness. It means a rigid inability to encounter pain, both in yourself and in other people. People get ill from being too, in inverted commas, happy. So these are mechanisms of denial. I'm going to make the joke. Denial is not just a river in Egypt. It is a function of your own mind that constantly keeps you from your true, your, your true self. In psychotherapy, one of the first things is say whatever comes through your mind. Okay? Do not censor. Most of the time in life, we spend all our time censoring. 
You know, the, you know the reason why sometimes we lose our thread? You say, oh, it's going to tell you something, right? The reason is that something's popped into your mind. You know, you don't know, but your unconscious knows that there was something shocking in what you wanted to say. Boom, you forget. All acts of day-to-day -day forgetting are designed to protect you from an encounter with an awkward truth. Well, we pay a very high price for not encountering awkward truths. And psychotherapy is a safe space where if it goes well, you should be encountering a lot of awkward truths. And fortunately, therapists are geared um, to listen and to be very receptive to pretty much anything you might want to tell them. The other thing is they're very kind. And most of us are ill, as I said to you at the beginning, because we have a shortfall of love. Now, the therapist is not going to give you romantic love, but they'll give you something far better. They will give you a close-up, attentive kind of care that most of us have not had in many, many years. And under that care, we will start to become more interesting to ourselves. We will remember so much of what we actually wanted to say. You know, some people bring out in us stories that we don't even know we have. And the reason they bring out those stories is we know that there's a place in them for that story to land. Similarly, other people feel very boring to us because we think there's so much in us that they wouldn't understand. So our sense of who we are attracts, uh, uh, contracts and expands like an accordion depending on the level of felt receptivity um, that we have in, uh, in, in the person we're, we're, we're talking to. Um, so look, um, all of us are in a culture that ruthlessly and relentlessly promotes us to escape who we are. We are constantly being invited to be inauthentic and to escape our true selves. The true, you know, we often talk about luxury. What is luxury? Is luxury a holiday, etc.? No. Luxury, we know, is time and safety in which you can travel inside that highly neglected, highly important, and highly damaged young person that exists inside all of us. Because all of us, to a greater or lesser extent, are living with things that didn't go quite right at the beginning. And so a true luxury is to allow us to take that little person in hand and guide them, guide them towards a place of greater safety. If we do that, we will be able to sleep better at night, our digestion will be better, we will be more creative, we'll be more authentic among our friends, and we'll be more light-hearted around the difficulties we've gone through. We will cease to see those difficulties as personal and individual punishments, and we will start to see them as belonging to the pain that every human being is allotted in the course of their life, and we'll be readier to reach out to the pain of others because we've made friends with the pain in us. So on that note, thank you so much. I hope you'll use today as a chance to make genuine friendships. And as you go around today, if you're looking for a friend, as I say, ask them quite quickly, what is painful in you? What is ailing you? What do you regret? What have you lost? These are the roots to friendship. That is friendship's true home. And if you want to have true friends, come and see us at the School of Life. We are a home for authenticity and friendship. Thank you so much. I absolutely loved Alan's session. There was just so much to think about and the atmosphere in the room was electric. 
I left reflecting not just on my own childhood and adult behaviours, but the impacts I was probably already having on my own children. As ever with Alan, there is much to think about. I hope you also took something away from Alan's talk. If you want to share your thoughts, visit stylist.co.uk or follow us at Stylist Magazine on social. And don't forget to subscribe to Stylist Live Sessions to hear more of our inspiring live talks. We've got The One Show's Alex Jones, author Bernadine Evaristo, comedian Adam Kay, Fern Cotton and many more. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>